We're going to be continuing this morning in our series on villains, on these people that we see in Scripture who have done certain things that maybe we can learn from their mistakes, learn from what they've been doing, and hopefully not repeat some of what they've done. If you missed it last week, Brian gave a great sermon on, the, um, on Cain and sort of this idea of chosenness and how should we act if we're not chosen. If you missed it, I recommend going back and giving that another watch. Um, this morning, I'm going to kind of give the big idea away right away, and then we're going to kind of unpack it a little bit as we go. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about the Apostle Paul, who of course is the biggest villain in all of Scripture. We all know that. But we're going to kind of be talking about his life a little bit and what we're going to see from his life a lot of his past before he was an apostle to when he became an apostle, is we're going to see this idea. Realizing our own villainy, our own ability to be villainous, to be evil, how do we realize that? How do we react to it? And do we realize, recognize that Jesus is the hero? Maybe we recognize our own problems, our own junk, but do we actually see Jesus as the hero? Because if we're going to go and find out from Paul today, it is actually very, very important for this piece of it to realize Jesus as the hero. Because the truth is, is that we all make mistakes. Every person has made a mistake in this room. Everybody has done something maybe wrong or evil or whatever. Some of us have made more mistakes than others. And maybe you're like me where you have maybe that one moment in your life that like, you don't know why, but you constantly have it coming back to you. <laughs> like maybe you're just like eating cereal in the morning and it, you're not thinking about it. And then all of a sudden you're like, ugh. I can't believe I called the teacher mom when I was seven. Like, you're sitting in the shower and you're like, oh, I tripped in front of the prom queen. Like, how could I do that? Well, for me, that moment came in seventh grade. And I think no story has ever started off good with in the seventh grade. <laughs> um, but in seventh grade, I was um, not really a very popular kid. I know, shocker. And uh, I really wasn't that social. I was still kind of extroverted, but I was not very good on other people. And like many kids, I took the bus every single day to school. To and from school, I took the bus, and uh, I grew up in a gated community, and what's unique about that is we didn't have a guard, and we didn't have um, any way for the bus driver to get into the gate, so somehow I got designated as the person who gets off the bus, types in the code, and gets back on the bus. Super cool responsibility, all the power. And also on this bus was one of the most popular girls in school, Ashley Crowley. She lived about two blocks away from me, but we had the same bus stop, and so one day at school, there's this new girl, named Molly, and she is the cousin of the most popular guy in school. So she's instantly popular, she's instantly cool, and everyone loves Molly. She's pretty, she's funny, she's smart, everyone loves Molly. So one day after school, I get on the bus as I normally do, hop on, I sit about second row from the back, because I'm, I'm a cool kid, we sit in the back, <laughs> and I see Ashley get on the bus, as she always does, but with like an entourage of like all the most popular kids are all getting on the bus, including Molly. And I kind of have this like panic attack, like I don't really know the popular kids, I don't really want to be around them. They all sit sort of kind of close to me, and then Molly sits down right next to me. And I remember it as clear as day, Ashley looking at me and saying, hey, Molly's sitting next to you, that's not nothing. And I just go red. <laughs> and I just kind of do like a, <laughs> you know, like, what are you supposed to say there? And I'm 13, and so I kind of hide in the corner. And um, then as the bus starts moving, I think to myself, oh no. I'm gonna have to get off the bus to type in the code. I have to interact with her. I have to do something to get past her. I have to talk to her. And so for our entire 30 minute drive, I'm pretty much just think, thinking, how am I gonna get past her? And it can't just be like, I can't just ask her, that's too simple for a 13 year old. It's gotta be something cool. 
So I'm thinking like, oh, because so, you know, you sit on the bus. She's not looking forward. She is kind of leaned into the aisleway, talking to her friends, right? She's not engaging with me. So she's kind of sitting in the, um, the aisleway. And so I'm thinking, oh, maybe I can just, you know, scooch past her, but then my rear end might be in her face and they could make fun of me and whatever. And so I come up with this brilliant idea. Brilliant. I'm going to put my hand on the seat in front of me, the hand on the seat behind me. I'm going to kind of hoist myself up like a gymnast and I'm just going to like hop over her. <laughs> like, this is my bright idea. Like, she's going to think I'm athletic. She's going to think I didn't, even, I didn't even care to talk to her. I'm just going to get off the bus. And so I have this plan. The bus comes to a stop. And I put my hand on the front seat, and as I'm putting myself up, Ashley, who has been on the bus with me every single day, points to Molly and is basically like, hey, he needs to get off the bus. And so she, who is in the aisle, turns to me as I'm doing this jump kick, and I kick her right in the face. <laughs> like, heel to jaw. I fall on my back. I have just kicked this new girl right in the face. <laughs> I am mortified. These little these, these teenagers are cursing at me. They're yelling at me. They're laughing at me. All the above. I sprint off the bus. I type in the code, and I think to myself, it's only a two-mile run to my house. <laughs> and I grew up in Arizona, so it's only about 185 degrees. So, But I decide I'm going to man up and get back on the bus. So I get on the bus, hide my face, sit in the very first seat. <laughs> we get to our stop, and I run home, and I was embarrassed. And it was, it's one of the worst moments of my life, and I think about it all the time. And the truth is, is that that's a funny story now, but it had genuine ramifications for my life. From that moment, I was terrified to talk to that group of people. I was petrified of the cool kids. I was petrified of especially this group of girls that I don't think I talked to a girl for three more years. Like, I just avoided them. I, I was terrified. I was scared. Based on the mistake that I had made, it had caused me to become stagnant. It had caused me to become avoidant. It caused me to become hiding. And so it got me thinking, how often when we make a mistake, when we do something wrong, do we avoid the person we've wronged? Do we run away? Do we hide? Are we embarrassed? And another step further, how often when we feel like we've done something harmful to God, do we avoid him? Do we say, no, I did something bad. I feel, I feel kind of gross about myself today, so I, I can't read my Bible. I can't open it up because ah, God, God doesn't want me today. Do I feel like I've done something wrong, so I don't want to go to worship I don't want to talk to God because I just feel like I'm not worthy. I feel like I'm not worth it. I feel like I've messed up. I've made a mistake. And what we're going to learn from the life of Paul today is that when we are faced with our own junk, with our own past, whether it's something we've had experience or something we are currently experiencing or will continue to do, every mistake we make should actually lead us to act. It shouldn't lead us to be stagnant and avoidant. It should actually lead us to act. So a quick history about Paul, really quickly. Um, I'm going to get this out of the way right now. To anyone who knows something about Paul, he's also called Saul. And many people, if this is you, it's not a problem, think that Saul is like his bad name and Paul's his good name. Like as if like S's are bad, like Satan and Snake. Like we're just like, oh, like who needs S's? Like Paul and Peter, P's are good. But no, Saul is most likely his Hebrew name. Hebrew version of his name written in Hebrew, and Paul was probably his Greek names written more in Greek letters because Paul was born Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus was a very popular town in Asia Minor, and it was, um, had some Hebrew influence, but it was basically um, living under Roman rule, so there was a lot of Greek and Hebrew influence. Paul will later in his life describe his childhood as a Pharisee being born of a Pharisee, so he's got very Pharisaical blood in him. He's sort of part of that group of people that basically um, condemned Jesus. And so, um, I'm not going to put up the scripture right away, but we are first introduced to Saul or Paul 
in the book of Acts at the end of chapter 7. But we need a quick background of what's going on right before we lead up to what Paul did. And some of you may know what Paul did, but maybe not everybody. But the end of the Gospels ends with Jesus dying on the cross for all of our sins, and then the disciples are kind of sitting around, not sure what's going to happen next. Then finally he comes back, he reappears, and everyone is over the moon. They're happy, they're excited. Our Jesus, our Lord, is back. The beginning of Acts starts with, basically, the resurrected Jesus and his interaction with the disciples. And so, while he's with them, he gives them, he teaches them, he preaches them, he, he tells them that the Holy Spirit will be on them and they'll be able to do these amazing things. And then Jesus departs, goes into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, and these disciples are then just go off. They just go crazy. They just start exploding for Jesus. They just start preaching and teaching and planting churches and saving people and healing people. They are doing some of the most amazing things that we could ever know. So much so that their organization kind of got too big and they kind of overused themselves. They needed to expand their operation. So they say, well, we can't be preaching and teaching and healing and praying. We can't do everything at once. So let's, let's get some new guys. Let's get some new people. So they gather a new group of people, one of them being this guy, Stephen. Stephen, there's not a ton said about him, but what is said about him is he's basically perfect. He's gracious, he's humble, he's strong, he's a, he's a man of God. He was great with his words, and he loved seeking the Lord. And so when we're introduced to Stephen, basically the first story about him is he gets preaching Jesus' name, and then he gets basically seized by a mob and by some Pharisees. Basically, people are like, you're preaching Jesus. We don't like that, so we're going to take you. We don't like this. They give him a chance to defend himself, and he has a famous speech, Stephen's speech, where basically he talks about the entire history of Christianity and people and history and ends it with, and all of this is true because Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you killed him. It's your fault. And it kind of ends with this, and they get mad and mad and mad. And so this is where we're going to pick it up in Scripture. If you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. If you don't, it's Acts, um, end of chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 58, and we're going to tiptoe into um, chapter 8. They dragged him, Stephen, out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged up both men and women and put them in prison. There's two big things I want us to see from this text right away. First, if you guys don't know, Stephen is the first Christian martyr. This is, this is coming at a time when, like, the, if you're reading Acts, if you're reading the Bible for the very first time, you're like, oh my gosh, things are finally going right for Christians. They're booming, it's exciting, and then bam, they hit Saul, who is ravaging the church, he is destroying it, and he is the one who, it says, approved of his execution. He even goes on to say later in the book of Acts that he basically owns full ownership. He's like, I basically was the one who killed Stephen, it was my fault. And then he destroyed the church. There's not a ton that goes into that description, but he would kidnap men, women, children. He would beat them. There's stories that tell that he flogged people. I mean, we've talked about some evil people, and there's lots of atrocities in this world, but it doesn't get much worse than deliberately destroying the name of Jesus. His entire life's purpose was to stomp on our God. He was literally anti-Jesus, anti-Christ. 
He has, even though it's only written here in a couple of verses, he has an awful, awful motive raised as a Pharisee. And then, as many of you know, he has one of the most incredible conversions in human history, in Christian history. He's on his road to Damascus. He's with some of his people. He sees a bright light. Jesus himself shows up, blinds him with his glory, and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this to me? He gets blinded. An angel of the Lord goes to somebody named Ananias, another man of God, and says, go to this man, Paul. He's our new servant. Go heal him. Go heal his eyes. So he goes, finds Paul. Paul's got like scales on his eyes. He's like part lizard now. (laughs) Gets it off. Paul gets his vision back. And instantly, just like the disciples did when Jesus resurrected, he just goes off. He just starts preaching the Lord. He just starts proclaiming the name of Jesus. The same guy who was going around saying, if you praise Jesus' name, I will threaten to kill you, is the same guy saying, you can go ahead and kill me. I'm praising Jesus. He's basically a real-life Grinch. Like, he's just so against the who's, and then all of a sudden they convince him. He's like, oh, I guess that's the right way. (laughs) Like, can I have a spot at the table? That's cool. But he goes from being this awful guy against Jesus to a man after God's own heart. And I think that that's such an incredible message. When he was faced with his own junk, when he's faced with his own iniquities, he didn't run away from Jesus. He didn't go and hide. Instead, it caused him to act. It caused him to praise. It caused him to go forward. And now, why do I think that that's the right thing? Why do I think that when we're faced with our junk, when we're faced with our own villainy, do I think we should go forward? I think it's a very simple idea that we see in the life of Paul, but it's very powerful. And it's this. When we get to know God better, we realize how far away we are from him, which causes us to draw nearer. Say that again. The more we get to know God, the more we try and figure out who he is, get to know him, the more we realize how unlimited he is, how infinite, how amazing, how incredible, how powerful he is. The more we get to know him, the more we realize how much different we are from him which causes us to go after him. Paul was faced with how much bad he had done, which made him realize how great God was. And I don't think that that's an unusual equation. I mean, how many of you know somebody, whether personally or through story or even on the news, of somebody who did some of the worst things in the world or had them done to them, and then they turned around and did the exact opposite and do the most amazing things? Why does it seem like always the people who have done the worst end up doing the best at the end? There is this direct relationship between how much, how bad we feel about ourselves gives a direct relationship to how good God is. Because if we don't think we're that bad, then God doesn't seem that good. If you don't think that you're that bad of a person, then you don't think you're that good. And I think Paul's able to do this because he sees Jesus as the hero. And that phrase to me is very important because there's two things I think can happen if you don't see Jesus as the hero. One could be, you do something wrong, you feel broken, you feel bad. If you don't see Jesus as a hero, I think you stay broken. I think you stay searching for something to get you out of this, but you don't feel like you deserve it. I think there's so many times when we we feel remorse for what we've done, and we think the humble answer is to stay in remorse. You know, there's stories of prisoners and inmates who have done horrible things, but they serve their time and they're able to come out of prison, and they want to stay in prison because they don't think they deserve to come out. And we can look at that and we can say, man, they know what they did. That's that's humility. But I don't think that's how we're supposed to live in Christ. I don't think we're supposed to stay stagnant. I don't think we're supposed to stay and just sit in our gunk and our remorse. So if you don't see Jesus as the hero, you might stay in your brokenness. 
Also, if you don't really see Jesus as a hero, you might not necessarily see yourself as a villain. You just sort of like, oh, well, Jesus is good, but I'm also pretty good. I don't really do anything wrong. So you don't see him as a hero. He, if, you're, if you're not that bad, then Jesus isn't that good. He came to save, but save you from what? You're okay, you're fine. Those people don't learn. They don't realize what's actually going on in their life. They, they, they are ignorant to sort of their own faults and their own problems. To not see Jesus as a hero is to either be broken and stay there, or to not notice it at all and sort of just live sort of in this ignorance, arrogance thing. Paul finds this perfect balance between, I am so broken, I am so messed up, and yet I have a hero. And because I have a hero, I'm able to go forward. I'm not, I'm not supposed to just stand still. Because even in our faults, even in our mistakes, we are able to find praise in God. Paul is going to say, if we, uh, we're going to be in 1 Timothy for a, for a hot second, Paul is going to go on and say this in 1 Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The same guy who ravaged and destroyed the church is the same guy who says, I messed up, but it was in my messing up that we are able to see Jesus working. Like, what an incredible concept. In our successes, praise God. In our failures, praise God. There is literally nowhere where God does not deserve praise. Because it is in our failures that he's able to look at us and say, hey, here's an opportunity to show my patience. Here's an opportunity to show my mercy, my grace. And Paul recognizes that. He says he is the worst sinner, the absolute worst, but he gets to use it. He gets to use it to advance God's kingdom. We are able in our mistakes, in our problems, in our own villainy, to not only personally get closer to God because it shows how bad we are, which shows how good he is, but it also can be used to advance his actual kingdom. And on top of that, I personally believe that there are physical, tangible attributes, traits, skills that you, I, all of us have learned in our problems that we can now use to our advantage. For example, Paul later in the book of Acts will start talking to a group of people and they're kind of ignoring him. So then he starts talking in Hebrew and everyone pays attention because they didn't expect him to know Hebrew. He only knows Hebrew because he was trained as a Pharisee. He is able to talk to people about the Old Testament way better than they could ever talk about it because he was trained in the Old Testament because he was trained to be a Pharisee. He was trained to do the exact thing, that, which is persecute Jesus. He was trained to be basically a hater of Jesus. And he is using those talents now to promote Jesus' name, to bring God glory. Every single one of us, everybody here has an ability, has something that they've done that you may think is bad or evil, and maybe it worked that way before, but you can actually use it to your advantage now. Um, a personal story is I, 
when I was growing up, I had two very, I had tons of faults, tons of faults, but I had two very apparent ones. One was, was that I was uh, an attention seeker and a people pleaser, which is a horrific combination, absolutely horrific. I was an attention seeker. I wanted every single eye on me. It didn't matter. Dinner parties with my family, I'd walk in and I wanted to be the life of the party. I wanted everyone at school to kind of see me before seventh grade and after sophomore year of high school. So, there was a shaky time in there. I won't go into that story. Um, but I wanted every eye on me. In the same way, I was a people pleaser. I wanted people to like me just because I wanted to look good. I was the guy who, if you called me at 2 a.m. and said, can you drive me to the airport? It's nine hours away. I said, great. But in my heart, I didn't care about being nice. I wanted, I wanted that person to tell everyone how nice I was. I wanted everyone to look at me. That's all I cared about. It was selfish. It was arrogant. I only cared about myself. And I still suffer from those things. I'm not gonna go on and say that I'm perfect. I absolutely still suffer from those things. But since I found God, I have become so much better at those things. And now, because I was an attention seeker, I don't mind public speaking at all. Now, I didn't say I was good at public speaking. I just said I don't mind it. <laughs> I still get nervous about what I have to say occasionally, but standing up here with eyes on me does not make me nervous at all. I'm the guy who could throw up at the last second and just say, go talk to a crowd of a thousand, and I'll do it. It may not be good, but I'll do it. And because I was a people pleaser, I loved observing people. I loved following them. I loved, I loved doing acts of service for people. I love seeing people's needs, and I love trying to meet them. Those things that were serving only me, I am now using those same skills and attributes to go forward for Christ. The amount of times I've had conversations with people, and they've said, Austin, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the stuff that's in my heart. You don't know what I'm thinking about. You don't even, it doesn't even have to be stuff I've done, the stuff I've thought about doing. There's no place for me in this kingdom. That is so untrue. It is so untrue. Through our failures, we can still praise God, and he has given every single one of us an attribute, an idea, something about us that can use to advance his kingdom. Paul knew it. But there is something very key there. You have to believe you actually have something to add. Now that's different. You might recognize that you're broken, you may recognize that Jesus is here, but you have to believe that you can actually go forward and that you actually have a talent and an ability to actually be a participant and a helper in God's plan. We're gonna again learn from Paul. We're gonna pick it up in 1 Corinthians chapter four. Paul is going to say, I keep flipping to the Bible, but I'm actually reading up there. This is a different translation. <laughs> That's all for show. I want you guys to like me. Um, <laughs> uh, Paul says this, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with that I teach everywhere in every church. And he's going to say again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, <clears throat> excuse me, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. The same guy who persecuted Jesus, bashed his name, is the same guy who said, I am broken and I need God's patience to save me, is now the same guy who's like, dude, imitate me. <laughs> if you can't look to Jesus, look, at least look to me. I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job of looking like Jesus, so you should look to me as an example. How many of you feel confident enough to tell anyone, hey, look to me as an example. Hey, I'm doing pretty dang good. Look at me. And that's because Paul realizes the next step, realizing he's a villain, Jesus is the hero, 
And a true, real, real belief that Jesus is the hero means that you are also a hero. That's the next step. Realizing that because Jesus did what he did, because he died on the cross for every single one of us, because he died on the cross for our sins, we have the ability to be invited into his family, into his partnership, into his, we are co-heirs with Christ. We may accept that we're broken. We may even trust that Jesus is a hero, but a true trust in Jesus is a hero is to trust what he says when he says, you are redeemed. You are saved. You are perfect in my sight because of the blood of Christ. And Paul lives in this perfect tension. He is simultaneously completely broken and a sinner and in desperate need of Christ, while at the same time made perfect in Christ's eyes and redeemed and sanctified. He is both of those things at the same time, which makes a beautiful relationship. I am broken, and I realize that I need God. And so I go to God, I realize how good I am, and so I, can't, and I go forward in his name, because that's what he wants from me. And then I make another mistake. Okay, how can I use that to continue to praise God? It's this beautiful cycle where we never get stuck in the mud. We never get stuck with, I can't do anything. That's so not true. Every single person could do something absolutely incredible for God. Every single person. Now, there's a guy by the name of Joshua Milton Blahi. I think we have a picture of him. Some of you might know him by name. Some of you might even know his picture. It's not Austin Chapman. Sorry, these, there he is. Um, you may know him by his military name, and I apologize in advance, but I got the okay to say this. His military name is General Butt Naked. I'll explain in a second why he calls himself that. So, this was one of the single most horrible men I've ever read about in my entire life absolutely awful. The atrocities that he committed, he has personally claimed to kill personally 20, 000, over 20,000 people. He was a warlord in Liberia, in Africa, during the Liberian Civil War. He has claimed to rape men, women, children. He committed sacrifices to the dark gods. He committed dark magic. He was a cannibal. He would eat the actual limbs of people. He would drown kids. He committed some of the worst stuff that could ever happen. Now, you tell me if this story sounds familiar. He's walking in the forest, ready to go kill more people, when a light shows up in front of him, and he falls to his knees, and he hears a voice that says, Joshua, why are you persecuting me? Repent, or you're going to die. He sees God. <laughs> He sees Jesus, and he instantly repents. Instantly. He once called himself general but naked because he believed that taking off his physical clothes made him more spiritually intact. He believed that the spirit world was what was leading him to dark magic. And in an instant, he puts on clothes, kind of like the Garden of Eden. He instantly puts on clothes and realizes, I'm doing something so wrong. And he has spent the last 20 years of his life being an evangelist and going around and proclaiming the name of Christ every second of every day, whenever he can. It is an absolutely incredible story. It's hard to not write an entire sermon on just him. But he goes around and he asks people for forgiveness. He's like, I messed up, can you forgive me? I, he walks up to people right to their face and says, I killed your brother, I killed your mother, can you forgive me? And they say no, and he says, I get that. But he could have easily seen his mistakes seen his problems and just wallowed in it and sat in it or taken his toll. Or he could see it as an opportunity that if even someone like him could turn, man, how great is God's patience? How great is God's kindness? How great is who God is? 
they held, um, in Liberia, they held like a conference, um, sort of courtroom thing, where they asked the warlords to come and sort of tell of their crimes, because they're trying to kind of get all the crimes on paper. They want to see how this is all going to happen um, politically, bureaucratically. He was the only enemy that showed up. He was the only person that showed up, and he pleaded guilty to every single thing he did. And that day, no one, up to that point, no one believed that his transformation was real until he owned up to everything, until he didn't hide, until he went forward. And he doesn't let any of his mistakes hold him. He's gone. He didn't let any of his mistakes, you don't have to put him back up. He doesn't let any of his mistakes hold him back, hold him still from going forward. Because even someone like him, God uses. But once again, he's one of those people. Drastic bad leads to a drastic good. Now, I'm not saying that we need to constantly sit and realize how bad we are. There's a place for repentance, and I understand all of that. But the moment that we think that there's not that big of a gap between us and God, that's a problem. That's the problem. Because actually, the more we get to know God, the more we realize that maybe we're not as close to God as we thought, which then causes us to draw closer to them. I have a friend of mine that when I first met them, I didn't know them that well. Our distance between each other was like this. We, we, we were very distant. We didn't know each other that well. And when I first met them, I thought that they were smart, but I didn't necessarily think that they were brilliant. I thought that we were about the same intelligence. We're about this. We're close on the intelligence scale. The more I got to know this person, the more I realized they were a lot smarter than me. Every time I met them, I'm like, oh, you're brilliant. Oh, my gosh. Next time I met them, you're a genius. <laughs> I don't even know what that word means. I, don't, I still don't know what the word opaque means. I'm not sure. Is it a color? Is it a verb? <laughs> um, <laughs> But it was interesting. The better I got to know this person, the bigger the gap I felt in our talent. And I think kind of the same relationship should happen with God. The closer we get to God, the more we realize how absolutely amazing and great and powerful and perfect he is. He is so much better than we are. I'm going to dislocate my shoulder. But that, that distance between us happens as we get closer to him. It feels backwards. But the better we get to know God, the more we realize we're not that close to him, which causes us to go to him even more. So the next time you feel like you've made a mistake or you feel like you have something you want to sit in and wallow in, I encourage you, of course, repent, think about it. But remember Jesus is the hero. Jesus dying on the cross, it does his, it does his death disservice to just sit in it, to just sit in it. Because he died so that all of us would feel freedom, all of us would feel redemption. He didn't die on the cross so that we'd hide. That's not why he did it. He did it that even though we did something wrong, we can still show our face because through Christ, we are actually made clean.